In the winter of 1983, the country was gripped by the kidnapping of supermarket executive Don Tidy. He was taken by the provisional IRA in front of his young daughter and son as he set off on the school run from his home in Dublin. The search for Mr. Tidy has been going on now for over two days. The men coordinating the search here at Refarnham Garda Station say there has still been no contact or ransom demand from the men holding him. The search for Tidy went on for 23 days before he was found in a forest in Leitrim. And with that, shots were fired. A bomb blast went off. And then there was a stained burst of gunfire. I shouted to clear the wood. The shootout with his IRA captors would leave two young men dead, a trainee Garda and an army private. His kidnapping by the IRA wasn't a first. To fund its terrorist campaign in Northern Ireland and Britain, the IRA had hit on the idea of kidnapping for ransom. But this one was different. The murders of two agents of the state in the line of duty were a profound shock to ordinary Irish citizens. I noticed um, on Friday evening in particular when it broke, there was a, a lot of anger and people felt that they had kept their mouths shut for too long, you know. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, the Don Tidy kidnapping and the rescue that left two men dead. I speak to Tommy Conlon and Ronan McGreevy about their new book, The Kidnapping. Ronan McGreevy and Tommy Conlon, it's 40 years since the kidnapping of Don Tidy by the provisional IRA. So, can you take me through the day of the kidnapping of Don Tidy in a Dublin suburb by the provisional IRA on a November morning in 1983? What happened? Well, he um, he was he was just bringing his daughter Susan to school. He um, should be remembered that apart from his apart from his profile, I mean, or his identity as this leading supermarket uh, executive, he was a widower. Uh, he was the father of three children. The mother of those children and his wife, uh, Janice, was her name. She died from leukemia in 1980. So he was uh, their sole parent by November 83. And um, Susan was the youngest. She was a schoolgirl and the two boys were maybe early 20s, late teens. But around after eight o'clock in the morning, uh, he's doing his usual thing, bringing Susan to school and then heading on, heading on to the company offices. He's followed in his car behind by his son, Alistair, who was also working for the company. They pull out of the driveway of their home down the road. There are a number of uh, IRA terrorists dressed as guards. They have cars there, sort of a, a, a checkpoint bogus checkpoint set up. They hail Tidy down. He slows down. He rolls down the window. What's your name? I'm Don Tidy. At which point they reach in, drag him from the car, beat him with the butts of their guns, drag Susan from the car, throw her on the uh, on the ground, uh, drag Don Tidy into a waiting car, push him down, sit him down and, uh, and they take off then uh, across the city. Looking back now, it seems... Almost impossible to understand, but there had been several kidnappings in those years, usually of business people, by the provisional IRA for ransom. Why was Don Tidy taken? Uh, Don Tidy was taken because um, the company that he worked for, the company that owned Quinsworth Associated British Foods, was a very big Anglo-Canadian conglomerate that owned supermarkets 
in the UK, North America and Ireland. They also own Fordham and Mason, Brown Thomas, Pennies, etc., etc. So it was it was regarded as a company that had the means to pay up. Kidnappers quickly sought a ransom uh, demand of five million pounds. There weren't too many companies around in those days that had had that kind of money. But Associated British Foods was regarded as precisely the type of company that might pay that money. Now, you know, maybe because it was a different time or, or maybe it's because of the sort of man Don Tidy is. But he's never spoken about his kidnapping until now, until you spoke to him for the book. He's in his late 80s. He was held hostage for 23 days. Did he tell you any details about that? What was it like being held? Any of those sort of details? I mean, the conditions that he endured in Dorado Wood were absolutely appalling. He was chained to a tree during the day and chained into a basically what was a, a, a depression in the ground with tarpaulin over it at night at all stages except when he had some ablutions to do. He um, he was uh, blindfolded and uh, thick bandages were put over his ears. So he had complete sensory deprivation as well. And yet, uh, because of his military training, because he is a person of the immensely strong character, he was able to endure that and wait for a moment. He didn't know that moment was ever going to come when he would try to escape. And that's what he did. Did he say anything about his captors? Were they, how did they treat him? Uh he actually, yeah, he said uh, that, well, he, first of all, he's not the type of character that would end up uh, suffering from Stockholm syndrome. I mean, he said he had very little to do with them uh, at all. He didn't see them. We had a debate with him whether or not he, he could, could have recognized him. He says he couldn't have recognized him. He said there was no small talk with them. They would ask him to do something. He would do it. And, uh, the only time that he ever really corresponded with them was where, when he had an ear infection uh, very close to the end of the kidnapping. And then he says, I need to get treatment for this or it's going to get serious. Were you injured, sir, or, or physically ill-treated? May I ask you again about the marks on your face? Oh, I think that when uh, you live in the countryside, uh, you expect to uh, bear the marks of the countryside. I understand uh, you were... You on were, your face. You were tied up for all of the three weeks, is that correct? Uh, it's correct to say that I was confined and that I was uh, totally desensitised in the sense that I was constantly uh, blindfolded. He deliberately decided not to ingratiate himself with them. We've heard of, we've heard maybe of um, hostage situations where the hostage somehow tries to humanise his abductors and and for they to humanise him in some way through some sort of the the fundamental connections, uh, uh, you know, that there might be a, a some sort of empathy established. Uh, Mr. Tidy made no attempt to ingratiate him. He kept himself to himself, and they kept themselves to themselves. Don Tidy had been bundled in a car by these bogus Gardaí, Provisional IRA men dressed up as Gardaí, and the last his children saw of him was being driven away. And then the manhunt began fairly quickly, I think. Um, now, this is a small country, but I suppose it's a big country if you're looking for someone who's been carefully hidden in what seems to have been a very planned, really well organised operation. And, you know, in fact, he could have been held anywhere, but he was found safe and alive. What led the Gardaí to Leitrim? 
there was a number of informers in the first instance. One was Sean Sean O'Callaghan, who had been one of the organisers of the first phase of the kidnapping, which was the original kidnapping of Don Tidy before he was handed over to another gang in Kildare. Um, The other uh, informer was the notorious uh, Freddy Scapatici, a.k.a. Steakknife. Uh, A third man was uh, a guy that Gardaí had noticed was... His car had been involved in the changeover from in County Kildare. He was interrogated. They all said that Don Tidy was being kept in Leitrim, but Leitrim, it might be a small county in terms of population. It's quite a big county and it's quite empty. So it's, it's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a conundrum. So obviously what the Gardaí did was, was put surveillance on all the main Republicans who were in the county, particularly on John John McGurl, who was at that stage Vice President of Sinn Féin. He'd been a founder of the Provisional IRA County Councillor in Balnamore. Uh, they also intercepted a phone call uh, that McGurl had made to a senior Republican in the North, which had also given uh, a greater indication that somewhere around Balnamore was the loci for the, uh, for the kidnapping. And then, um, Basically, they got lucky in the end of the day. I mean, there was, uh, it was a huge number of people who were searching in that sort of broad area, which is to the north of Balnamore on the, uh, towards the Cavan border. And that's how they found Don Tidy on the 16th of December, 1983. So, you know, we hear the expression ring of steel, you know, that there were so many Gardaí and army mobilized to, to try to find. Don Tidy. What happened when they eventually came across the hideout? That particular day, there are 10 search parties scattered across wide sweep of that terrain that, that includes mountain, forest, bog and field. Each search party had about 25 personnel, mixture of guards, soldiers, detectives and trainee recruit guards who had been drafted in from Templemore Training College, 25 in each search party. Each search party had a number and a name, Rudolph 1 to 10. Rudolph 5 entered Drumcroman Wood, what would become nationally known as Dorada Wood, and quickly advanced through this uh, darkness. Bear in mind, this is a Friday afternoon around half two, and so the, the winter light is pretty poor anyway, and now they're in the inside of the woods and uh, these pine trees, so it's semi-darkness, and up ahead in a clearing, they spot masked men wearing khaki clothes, tending to their auto- AK-47s automatic weapons, and there's a kind of a realisation, a sudden realisation among the search party, here we are. We have found the needle in the haystack. And there's a pause. What do we do now? There's silence. And uh, the sergeant or one of the uh, guards, uh, uh, you know, makes the hush gesture. And then they look in and they're trying to ascertain, are these men possibly on the off chance army rangers, for example? Not quite sure. Either way, they're trained anyway to, uh, you know, not to shoot first and ask questions later. They're trained to try uh, um, and make an authorised arrest. So one of the uh, guardies shouts in, identify yourselves. There's no reply. Then Gary Sheehan, 23-year-old recruit from Carrick Macross, shouts in, soldier, identify yourself. And almost instantly, there's a shattering uh, burst of machine gun fire and Gary Sheehan is shot dead instantly. Another burst of gunfire and Private Patrick Kelly, 36 father of four, is slain as well. And uh, in those same moments then, the IRA gang detonate a stun grenade. 
And in the chaos and confusion, Mr. Tidy throws the chance he'd been waiting for, throws himself to the floor, rolls down an incline and ultimately to safety. The gang takes seven, a mixture of guards and soldiers hostage and marches them at gunpoint out of the wood onto the road. And this is the beginning of their escape attempt. Once the gang have gotten rid of their seven prisoners, they double back to uh, a farmyard beside Dorada Wood where there is an Opal Cadet car uh, with the keys in the ignition. Uh, four of them get into the car. Uh, one gets into the boot and they start firing uh, indiscriminately at the uh, soldiers and, and, and guard the personnel that are there as they drive down the road trying to escape. Uh, in the ensuing gun battle, uh, they shoot Detective Sergeant Donny Kelleher in both legs. Don Tidy, who is uh, beside Donny Keller at the at that time, is almost shot as well. The gang power on in the car uh, until they're stopped by a patrol car that, that's blocking their path. Uh, they get out of the car, they jump over a fence into a field, uh, firing as they go along to keep the Gardaí and Army personnel back, and they disappear into a large plantation on the Cav and Leitrim border and are never seen again. The hostage was found, the hostage was released. That's a success. But ultimately, it was a tragedy. I mean, I was struck by a quote in your book from a senior army officer who said, we didn't expect them to kill a soldier or a guard. But that's what happened. Can you tell me about the two men who died? Private Patrick Kelly was 36, father of four. He was originally from Ballinamook County, Longford, uh, joined the army in the late 1960s, did uh, several tours of duty in Lebanon and Cyprus. He was an army driver with the 6th Western Brigade in, in Athlone. He had married uh, Katrina and they lived in Moat. They were very happy living in Moat at the time. Part of the tragedy is that Katrina Bradley's father had died only some weeks before. He had left her his house. So they were all going to move into this house and they're going to start a new life in this home for themselves. And this tragedy happened. And their four boys, um, the oldest was nine, David, the youngest was 10 or 11 weeks, Andrew. And uh, um, as Andrew told us in the book, uh, he never had a photograph taken with his dad. And it's, it's a totally devastating, rupturing effect on the family and everything. And um, it was the moment interviewing the Kellys was where one, one became familiar with the actuality, the reality of intergenerational trauma, as opposed to maybe the more abstract idea that we would have of it. Sitting down at the kitchen table in the in their family home that their father and mother hoped to be their family home, the Kelly sons, talking about the trauma 40 years later, it brings home just how profound the intergenerational trauma is. Gary Sheehan was uh, from Carrick Macross, County Monaghan. He was uh, the third generation of his family to serve uh, on Garda Sheehakana. Um, in fact, the, the family had unbroken service in, in, in the state going back to the National Army, so going back even before uh, independence. He was 23, which is old enough actually going into uh, Templemore. Most people arrived straight out of school. He um, he was, he had done a bit of living actually. He had been made redundant twice, so were things that bad in the 1980s. He was into his rock music, he was into travelling, he was into his bicycles. So he had done quite a lot of living for such a young man at the time. Both are the only recruit guard and the only army soldier to be killed 
during the Troubles. Um, but they weren't the first Gardaí to be killed in the Troubles. Um, there had been, um, there was in fact in total 11 Gardaí who were killed by Republicans during the Troubles. The most recent example, of course, being uh, Jerry McCabe in 1996. So uh, Republican paramilitaries had form in terms of targeting Gardaí. Coming up, why was no one brought to justice for the murder of a Garda and a soldier during the rescue of Don Tidy? So Ronan, the book is called The Kidnapping, and you say that while Don Tidy is the principal character of the book, and particularly because you were able to interview him for his personal experience, um, you say the book is really about Republican subversion of our state. What do you mean? Well, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a historian as well as a journalist. My last book was on the Civil War, and I'm very interested from from the outset in how, as an independent state, we were blessed with having no external enemies. So our biggest internal enemy was that Republican element going back to the split that followed the Civil War, that refused to accept the state and uh, took up arms against the state. Now, the most famous example of that, of course, is the Civil War, which ended in a comprehensive defeat for the anti-treaty IRA. But the IRA never went away at all. And um, they were actually banned in 1936 by de Valera. There were several incidents during the Second World War in which uh, the the IRA killed uh, Gardaí, and uh, six of them were hanged by de Valera, even though de Valera himself had been anti-treaty during the... Uh, Civil War. And then, of course, you have the border campaign of the 1960s leading to onto the Troubles. I guess my point really is that, you know, the narrative nowadays is that the provisional IRA were the enemy of the British state during the Troubles, where in fact they were the enemy of the Irish state as well. Their declared uh, goal was to overthrow not just the six-county state, but also the 26-county state and to create uh, a democratic socialist Ireland, which I suspect would have been none of those things had they ever succeeded. But I think people have seriously underestimated the threat that that uh, the IRA and, and, and the INLA uh, posed to this, this state during the Troubles. Now, I found the chapter that focuses on the reaction of the people of Leitrim, specifically of Balnamore, to the kidnapping. I found that particularly fascinating because in the immediate aftermath, when Don Tidy was found, there was massive media attention on the whole event. But the media, you know, descended on Leitrim. And the reception wasn't warm. They tried to get Vox Pops. They tried to find out, trying to get the temperature of the people, how they felt about the kidnapping. Can you tell me about that? Well, I'm from Balnamore in County Leitrim and on the, I was living in Dublin as a student in Dublin at the time and on the evening of the December the 16th I got the bus home from Dublin to Balnamore as per usual and of course the t- it was the, the shooting dead of uh, Sheehan and Kelly had absolutely sent the nation into a state of shock. The concept of shooting a guard, the, the guardie were famously, as we know, out of our community. There was never any sense of them and us with the with the guards on Garda Shikan in particular, and for I, I vividly remember like that weekend uh, the mammies in Ballinamore, including my own, bringing up pots of stew and soup to the soldiers and guardy who were manning all these checkpoints and standing at these fires and tar barrels trying to keep warm in these bitter winter days, and it was like 
Gary Sheen and Patrick Kelly were like, you know, the sons of the mothers of Ireland and that it shocked people. It shocked me. So that's that was on the Friday. On the Saturday morning, I went downtown to see what was happening. Of course, it was jam packed with with soldiers, guards, jeeps, uh, squad cars, lorries, press, cameramen, photographers, television was. And at some stage early that afternoon, a small convoy emerges from down the country road and comes into the town. And that convoy contains the ambulances in which are the bodies of Gary Sheehan and Patrick Kelly. The bodies had been left in the forest overnight to be examined post-mortems, forensics on the Saturday. And I remember that scene quite vividly. And then subsequent to that, all the media disappeared Bar Brendan O'Brien from RTE and Today Tonight, and it was his the his famous uh, investigation for Today Tonight. I think that you reference where he interviewed the parishioners coming out of Corralehan Church, uh, the parish in which Dorada Wood is just literally over the road, and so it was it wasn't actually Ballamore, just as a matter of interest. It was Corralehan five miles away, and uh, and he asked famously asked them one by one, would they have told the guard if the new man was being uh, detained in the forest and one by one they said no comment and everyone was conflated nearly everyone in Leitrim never mind Ballinamore but certainly uh, in Ballinamore which iron- irony of ironies for 70 years had its own TD from Common and Gael and then Fine Gael, the very antithesis of Sinn Féin three generations of the Reynolds families were were, were returned to Dolairn from Ballinamore we were conservative law-abiding but after Brendan O'Brien's thing, we were all lumped in together as IRA sympathisers. So what happened then, though, in Ballinamore? Because you say that the, the two young men who died were like the sons of the community, nearly. So were they commemorated or celebrated or remembered in any way? No, sadly. Um, people turned the page on it pretty quickly in Ballinamore, as I guess everywhere else and moved on with their lives and their day-to-day lives and all like that. And uh, the the months went by, the years went by, and uh, sadly enough, that whole terribly poignant, tragic episode uh, slipped into the pages of history. To the extent now that there is no memorial in County Leitrim to either Kelly or Sheehan, which we as Leitrim people find we think is unacceptable, uh, David Kelly, um, who has been heroic in championing his father's memory, came down to Leitrim with his brother Michael to our to attend our book launch, and he told the crowd there that um, that himself and his his brothers came looking for Dorada Wood some years ago, couldn't find it because there are no markers. There's no way of knowing where it was. Unless you're a local, and that is, that's very sad. There is a memorial to John Joe McGarl, uh, mentioned earlier, um, founder member of the Provisional IRA, and in 1983, uh, Sinn Féin vice president and a councillor with Leitrim County Council, who was centrally involved in the conspiracy, the Dorada Wood or the Leitrim leg of the conspiracy. Uh, the hideout had to be built. It had to be identified and it had to be prepared with camping equipment and food and that all had to be ready for the gang when they arrived from Dublin and also the gang uh, would have had no clue of the topography of the area whatsoever and it was dark at night. There had to be local local activists in charge of that. It's generally understood and there's a lot of intelligence uh, that John Jimmy Girl was central to the Leitrim end of the conspiracy. So therefore, I think it's plausible to say he was complicit in the murders of Sheehan and Kelly and yet 
there is a memorial to uh, Mr. McGarrell in Ballinamore, which doesn't really have a mandate because none of us in Ballinamore were ever consulted about that. We weren't asked about it. It was just the local Sinn Féin activists uh, raised the money and built the monument. And it was kind of a solo run. The silent majority of the people who were appalled by what happened to Gary Sheehan and uh, Patrick Kelly, they've toler- we've tolerated it rather than accepted it. So there's no getting away from the fact that, in many respects, this was a botched operation because the kidnappers escaped. They were surrounded by Gardaí and the army in Leitrim and they escaped. Was anyone ever tried for the kidnapping of Don Tidy? Yes, there were several people who were tried in connection with the kidnapping. Uh, one of them was Michael Burke, who received a hefty sentence. He had been one of the original kidnappers, the ones who had kidnapped Don Tidy in Dublin. But in terms of the ones who kidnapped Don Tidy and kept him in, in Leitrim for 23 days and then murdered the guard and the private soldier, uh, no, nobody has ever been charged for that. It should be noted that unlike, say, in the North, where you have the famous or infamous legacy bill, this is still a live investigation. And um, there's still a possibility, albeit a remote one at this stage, that there will be prosecutions in relation to this. But there's no statute of limitations on murder. So but there has been nobody charged with with murder so far. So as we've pointed out in the book, whoever did this has been getting away with murder for the last 40 years. Now, Don Tidy remained living in Ireland. I, I, I think at the time that was a bit of a surprise because after all, he was executive of a, a British company, he could have gone back to Britain, um, but he didn't. He stayed here. Um, as you say, he was a widower at the time of the kidnap, but he, he, he remarried some years later and had another daughter. In the book, you describe him as a grateful survivor. What do you mean? Well, he's he he's looking back on his life, uh, and again, I don't presume to speak on his behalf. He's he's a formidably formidably strong man, and with a, some a lot of moral clarity about these matters. And indeed, I think his deep religious faith um, um, also informs his perspective and his worldview. I suppose looking back, uh, he survived this terrible ordeal in which. Uh, a young soldier and a, a guard and a soldier died and um, and he has a sense uh, of counting his blessings, I think. And he's a healthy, long, healthy life, managed to find love a second time. Um, that uh, union produced a, a daughter whom they adore. There's a sense that he's grateful for having had a good life and uh, bar that terrible ordeal, which which he came to, seems to come to terms with and carried on living as best he could. Yeah, I, I would go along with that. I mean, I think, you know, I got, I've gotten to know Don a lot over the last few months. He feels that uh, it was fate that uh, he survived um, what happened in Dorada Wood. I mean, the, the, the irony is the closest thing he came to being shot himself was when he found himself at the bottom uh, when he had rolled down the hill escaping the kidnappers and found uh, an army private with with a, with a gun placed to his temple who thought he may have been a terrorist and as as Don Tidy says, it was it was providence that that uh, soldier uh, didn't pull the trigger. But of course, as a man of faith, he he doesn't really understand um, why it is the case that 
bad things happen to good people like the Sheehans and the, and the Kelly. So there is all of that about it. But um, uh, he's a very, very, very interesting man for all of that. He's very philosophical, uh, a deep thinker, somebody who's very methodical in his thinking and at 88 ha- has a remarkable recall. That's it for today. The Kidnapping, a hostage, a desperate manhunt and a bloody rescue that shocked Ireland by Tommy Conlon and Rona McGreevy is out now. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>